And I think it was well-spent oil wealth that helped us become energy independent. That was Kodiak fisherman Stosh Anderson, who is a guest on this podcast episode. Welcome to The Future Ocean. What can carbon policy do for the oceans and our fisheries? This is a podcast for coastal Alaskans. In earlier episodes, we explored what is happening to the ocean ecosystem and our fisheries. Then we heard from economists about who is paying the cost of ocean warming, other manifestations of climate change and ocean acidification, the social cost of carbon. We talked with experts about different policy models for putting a price on carbon emissions as tools for accelerating the transition to renewable energy. This is episode six. We're going to hear about progress on the emerging renewable energy transition right here in Alaska. The Future Ocean podcast is an informational discussion sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network. I'm your host, Maggie Wall. In this episode, we're talking with Chris Rose, who is the founder and executive director of a group called Renewable Energy Alaska Project, or REAP, R-E-A-P. They are a nonprofit education and advocacy group promoting renewable energy and energy efficiency. Chris Rose is going to discuss what makes energy systems unique in Alaska, how things are different in rural Alaska compared to communities on the road system, which is also known as the rail belt. Then he'll report on how development of renewable energy in Alaska is turning our oil wealth into clean energy. We'll also hear about one of Alaska's renewable energy stars, Kodiak Electric Association. Let's start off by asking Chris Rose what's unique about Alaska when it comes to production of electricity and other energy needs. Alaska is a very unique place. We'd be the 19th biggest country on the planet if we were a country. So we're bigger than most places around the world. Uh, We have a huge distance between communities and we have very few people. So those are challenges anywhere you look, whether you're talking about Anchorage or some remote rural village, um, large distances and small populations, essentially economies of scale, are an issue here in Alaska. But in some ways that has led to uh, some really exciting opportunities. So we have 250 remote communities that are not connected by road or transmission line to what we call the rail belt grid, which is the grid that Fairbanks and Anchorage and the Kenai Peninsula are all part of. Those 250 communities have been relying for the last 60 years or so, since they've had electricity, on importing diesel not only to make electricity, but also to uh, heat their homes and their buildings for the most part. That diesel electricity and diesel heat is super expensive. So they've had a great incentive to innovate. We have now more than 80 communities out of those 250 who have put in some renewable energy into their system at a community level. So integrating that with the grid And that has led to Alaska being recognized as one of the leaders in the world for integration of renewables on these diesel grids, so diesel hybrid systems. So it's not just the renewable technology, it's the uh, control systems and sometimes energy storage systems that marry the diesel grid 
to the wind or the solar or whatever else the community may have installed. So there's really interesting things going on in rural Alaska. On the rail belt grid, um, there's been a, a, a little bit more complacency as far as innovation goes. I'm a Matanuska Electric Association customer. It's one of four co-ops in, in the rail belt. My electric costs have gone up uh, almost 50% in the last 10 years. That's a huge increase. And that's across the board. It's not just MEA, it's Chugach Electric, it's Golden Valley Electric, it's Homer Electric, it's City of Seward. The whole rail belt grid now is paying a lot more than it was even 10 years ago. And that's primarily related to the price of natural gas, the fuel that the grid uses to make electricity primarily going up and up and up. The price of natural gas in the rail belt has gone up six or seven times in the last decade or more. And that has driven the cost of electricity way up. REAP's program is far-reaching, but we asked Chris Rose to focus on a few nuts and bolts initiatives. There were two state programs launched in 2008 that have proved highly successful. These are the Renewable Energy Fund and the Weatherization Fund. We looked at the idea of a Renewable Energy Fund, which existed at that time in several states. And we looked at it because we at that time had a lot of money. Oil prices were high. There was a budget surplus. And we figured, well, we could convert some of that oil wealth into renewable energy. Um, so what we did was promoted the idea of our renewable energy fund. We got that bill introduced in 2007. It passed in 2008. In the first year, the legislature put $100 million into it. Uh, and on su in subsequent years, uh, we were able to get the legislature to appropriate $170 million more. So in total, $270 million of state money went into that fund, and that leveraged another $200 million or so from private and federal sources. And that is what primarily built the 80 renewable energy projects in rural Alaska that I mentioned earlier. In 2008, we also made a huge push to uh, promote the weatherization programs that Alaska Housing Finance Corporation had at the time, um, but hadn't been funded very well. And in the first year alone, I think in 2008, we were able to get $360 million toward those weatherization funds. And HSC also created a rebate program. So if you were under median income, you got a $10,000 grant for energy efficiency upgrades. And if you were over median income, you could do it yourself and then get a $10,000 rebate later. To make a long story short, over the many years that we pushed for more money for that, a total of $640 million came from the legislature. Over 50,000 homes were retrofitted. The average savings of those homes was 30%. That's a huge savings. And HFC estimates that every year, those homes collectively are saving about 25 million gallons of heating oil equivalent. Some are saving heating oil, some are saving natural gas. But 25 million gallons of heating oil equivalent every single year is being saved through that investment. To continue robust investment in renewables and energy efficiency, even as the state has less money to spend, REAP came across a novel approach called a green bank. In a nutshell, what a green bank is, it's a quasi-governmental entity that takes a modest amount of state money or federal money or local money 
and leverages it by designing loan products and programs that the private sector is not developing on their own, but then pulling the private sector banks into those deals so that most of the money for the loans actually comes from the private sector and most of the work gets done by the public sector. So Green Bank is a public-private partnership that works very well to leverage private sector money for energy efficiency and renewable energy, but primarily for energy efficiency. Progress on setting up an Alaska Green Bank is pending. Governor Mike Dunleavy introduced a Green Bank bill to the Alaska legislature in 2021, and there could be movement on the bill during the 2022 session. It will enable people and businesses to get affordable loans for energy upgrades and conversions. For instance, if I go to my bank today and say, hey, I want to borrow $10,000 to make my home more energy efficient, my local bank or credit union might say, sure, here's a, here's a loan at 10% interest and you need to pay it back in five years. Well, that's not a very affordable loan for me. But if the Green Bank can talk to those same private uh, sector banks and say, look, we can guarantee you volume and we can show you how this really works, um, we will... Uh, ask you to lower the interest rate and give people more time. So now I might get a 5% loan and have 10 years to pay it back. All of a sudden, that makes all the difference because the energy savings I'm going to have every year, remember 30% energy savings that HFC's program has proven, that energy savings gives me the dollars every month to pay my loan back. So basically, it's a, it's a, it's a cash flow neutral type of transaction or even a cash flow positive transaction where I'm now saving as much or more money every month as I'm paying back. On another positive front, a bill was signed into law in 2020 that, in effect, unifies all the utilities on the rail belt. This move is requiring substantial work to implement, but it will create a much larger grid by connecting the Kenai Peninsula to Fairbanks. Communities will benefit from sharing and making better use of electricity generated from renewables anywhere on the rail belt. It will enable region-wide planning for renewable energy infrastructure. The utilities working together as one grid, rather than siloed, isolated grids, can set a goal for how much natural gas to displace with renewables and on what timetable. This is a big step toward modernizing energy production in Alaska. Let's take a break from the big picture for just a bit and hear from Kodiak. Kodiak is the number three port in the whole United States in terms of seafood landings. So what happens with energy production in Kodiak matters, of course, to people who live there, but also to the seafood industry as an economic mainstay. Kodiak Electric Association, or KEA, produces almost all of the area's electricity with renewable energy. That's six major seafood processors, a regional airport, a hospital, the world's largest Coast Guard base, a rocket launch facility, the school system, and marine laboratories. And let's not forget the day-to-day living needs of approximately 14,000 residents and the businesses that support them. Hello, my name is Darren Scott. I'm the president and CEO of Kodiak Electric Association. And Kodiak Electric Association, KEA, is the electric cooperative that serves the community of Kodiak and uh, Port Lyons. We're basically 100% renewable. So we make up about 80% of our power, 80 to 85% with Terror Lake. That's a hydroelectric plant. 
in the remote part, uh, center part of Kodiak Island. And the other 15 to 20% uh, comes from the Pillow Mountain wind plant. Uh, that's six uh, wind turbines up uh, right behind town. And, uh, and they make up, again, about 15%. And then we have uh, a couple of uh, energy storage systems, batteries and flywheels that kind of help glue it all together. And then finally, we have a fleet of diesels that we don't like to run, but we, we have them there for backup in case we have a problem with the system. The flywheels are a unique and elegant feature of Kodiak's renewable power portfolio. They power electric cranes used by shipping companies loading seafood containers at the dock. The concern we had when they were looking at uh, installing this crane, uh, being a large electric load, when they would go and they'd pick up the, the heavy containers, they would need two to three megawatts of power instantaneously. And then they would come and then they would drop it back down on the ship and then they would inject almost that much power coming back in our system. It's a great design of a crane. Um, and when you're on a system in the lower 48 and you've got thousands of megawatts of power moving around, a couple megawatts doesn't swing things very much. But when our average load is 17 megawatts um, and you've got two or three megawatts swinging up and down, you know, every few seconds for hours on end, our grid couldn't take that, that instability. So that's where the flywheels came in. Um, they kind of filter that instability out. And in, in real simple terms, um, flywheels are a very... Um, very mechanical type devices. They're just a heavy weight spinning around at very high RPMs. And that has a lot of momentum energy behind it. And so when the crane needs that, that burst of power to, to lift the box, we take that momentum that the, the flywheels have and convert it to electricity instantaneously. And then what's really cool about the cranes and the flywheels, how they work together, when the, when the crane is dropping the, the box back down, it injects power back in the system. The flywheels grab that power and speed themselves back up. So it's a very efficient system, how it works together. And, and we don't see all those um, ups and downs that the crane does because the flywheels help. Now, let's go back to the beginning. Why did Kodiak decide to go all renewable? It wasn't so much cost. It wasn't the whole green power that initiated things. It was the variability of our cost of power. So you know, the fish processing uh, organizations or the hospital or the schools, they're trying to budget, they're trying to plan. And, um, and they're like, well, what, what's our price of power going to be? And then my only answer was, you know, well, two, how much is it going to rain for a hydro plant? And what's the price of diesel going to be? We were you know, 40, 50% diesel at the time. And, and that made a huge difference. And, and how much it was rain and snowing was, was how much diesel we we're going to burn. And then what the price was, was, was going to wildly fluctuate our cost of power. And that was, that was really hard on, on some of our large users of power. And, and with that, we, we was like, we need to find a way to stabilize this. We want to be cost effective and we want to stabilize this so we can tell people what it's going to be. And that started us really down the renewable energy road. And now our cost of power is, it's been flat. It's, we were looking at this. We just talked to our, our membership about this. And from a residential standpoint, um, the cost of power from 2000 to today is 0.4% difference. So basically flat in those 21 years, um, we've been kind of going down this road. We asked Darren Scott, how did the community of Kodiak react? There was definitely a little bit of skepticism at the beginning because you know, this hadn't really been done in, in Alaska before. One of the wonderful things to see, you know, for KA to see now, um, is how the community is identified. And you, the wind turbines, if you've ever been to Kodiak, are right behind town on Pillar Mountain. And so 
if you go into the high school, they've got some wall murals um, in, inside the high school, just artwork. One of them is the wind turbines. Um, one of them are the wind turbines just in, on there in town. Um, this weekend, there's the Pillar Mountain Race, which is a race that goes on our crab festival. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's got the wind turbines on the shirt for the race. Um, several years ago, the crab festival, um, the whole slogan was, was powered by renewable energy and the wind turbines are part of the slogan. Um, several different, you know, events happen on the island and the wind turbines are now part of it. You, you drive through town, the chamber of commerce puts up uh, in the summertime, uh, little banners on, on light poles and stuff like that. You know, the flowers or fishing or whatever it may be in, in one of the banners are wind turbines. So the, the, it, it's become an identity step for the community. And that's, that's just something that we didn't expect or that was not part of the plan at all, but it's just, it, it is very rewarding to see. There seems to be a steady stream of benefits from KEA's renewable energy development, including what to do with surplus power. Another local partnership, we partnered with the school district in the borough, and we put in um, electric boilers into uh, the high school, the middle school, and the the fisheries research building on Near Island. And with that, we can now take and and lower their cost of, of energy so we, we guaranteed them a lower price than whatever they would have paid with fuel oil. And they heat their buildings with electric heat and the pools electric heat as well. And, uh, and they, save, uh, they save money and we, um, we make a little bit of revenue on the excess that we wouldn't have sold otherwise. And then also we, as a community, we burn a lot less diesel. So, you know, the air is just that much cleaner. So it's, it's kind of a win-win-win all the way around. And it's, it's something you can do in, the, in a small community like Kodiak. And we all partner together to, to find good solutions to things. And a congratulations is in order for the international recognition KEA has received for their stellar success. They have given presentations in Saipan, Greenland, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. All islanded grids wanting to go more renewable and who are looking at Kodiak as a model. Next, we talk to longtime fisherman and KEA board member Stosh Anderson. We asked him how KEA's renewable energy success has affected the seafood industry. And in the interest of public disclosure, the Claudia and Stosh Anderson Fund helped to support this podcast project. Our development of the wind hydro system has impacted the community in many ways. People like just have the aesthetic beauty of it in that they're not contributing to greenhouse gases. Uh, People like that. But on the economic side, we're supplying energy to our processing industry cheaper than any place on the coast. So they're at an economic advantage in their processing, which hopefully trickles down to the ability for the processors to pay a higher ex-vessel price, uh, pay their processing workers more, and and contribute to the community both uh, socially and, and with their employment opportunities. It certainly affects their marketing strategy because There are certain outlets, uh, retail outlets in the country that want to be able to say that their food products uh, come from a renewable source uh, that are non-hydrocarbon usage. And that's marketed and that follows the products that leave Kodiak in the marketplace. They can get a premium for that and they get access to markets that they couldn't in other ways. So the processing industry likes the opportunity. They like the cost of power being very stable and and not as expensive as their competition. So we get a lot of positive feedback from the processors. 
We asked Stas Anderson to reflect on the wisdom of KEA's decision to go all renewable. And you look at the current costs and long-term costs, what I came to realize is you're going to spend the money. You're either going to spend it in capital costs up front and, and have loan payments and pay interest on whatever on the money you borrowed, or you're going to give it to the oil companies. And in the long run, it's proved to us that you're much better off if you have the resource available to spend the money and do the development and harvest the natural energy that's available in your community. Right now, our, our cost of energy is basically interest and labor to operate it. The energy is free. As long as it rains and the wind blows, we're in good shape. That was Kodiak Stosh Anderson. Well, by all accounts, Kodiak Electric Association is a real success story. But they're not alone. Another standout example is Kotzebue, where they have installed wind and solar power with a large battery storage bank. Who says you can't do this above the Arctic Circle? The community has also installed small electrothermal heaters and air source heat pumps in homes and businesses to displace heating fuel. And waste heat is being recovered to make ice for Kotzebue fishermen. Meanwhile, Cordova is surging ahead with plans to add wind, solar, and energy storage to their hydro capacity and to eliminate diesel by 2030. So it's easy to see the benefits of renewable energy. The policy question is how to make the transition on a large enough scale to put the brakes on climate change and ocean acidification. These, remember, are externalities of carbon emissions for which society is paying the cost. To conclude, we asked Chris Rose from the Renewable Energy Alaska Project how his clean energy work in Alaska would mesh with a national policy that puts a price on carbon emissions. Could they work together? I think these policies are mutually reinforcing because what is going to happen with a carbon pricing regime is a move toward innovation to non-carbon producing technologies. If we do have a carbon price, whether it's cap and trade at the national level or a fee and dividend at the national level, um, that is going to put a price on those externalities that is going to make uh, renewables even more competitive. And we're going to see more renewable energy uh, projects being built. Well, thank you to our guest, Chris Rose, and to our friends from Kodiak Electric Association, Darren Scott and Stash Anderson. It's good to hear a bit about what progress has been made statewide and to learn about the promising Green Bank Bill introduced in 2021 in the Alaska Legislature. You can find more information about topics in this episode by visiting our website, thefutureoceanpodcast.com. You can also find all six episodes there, or you can listen by subscribing to The Future Ocean on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Future Ocean Podcast is sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network and is produced in Kodiak, Alaska, 
where electricity is generated nearly 100% by renewable energy. Music in this episode is by Chris Ann Sweeney. I'm your host, Maggie Wall.